0: That's a difficult thing to be confronted with as a regulator, is that your tools don't work, right? Uh, because, it, you know, what it, it, uh, if all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail, right?
1: Welcome to the Human Era Podcast. A show where we discuss the future of humans in a world that is dominated by technology. What does tomorrow look like? And how can we stay true to what we really are? Humans. <laughs> well, Ryan. Uh, good to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks, very appreciate it. It's been a couple of months since uh, since you've been here. How have you been in the last couple of months? Uh, busy.
0: Yeah, busy. Yeah, I actually spent a lot of time in Italy. We were doing some data collection and uh, running around Milan and Turin during some interviews. Uh, and then pulling the project together, finalizing some things. I went to some summer schools as PhD students are uh, want to do, which was really nice. I mean, uh, a week in Logano on the university's dime is not too bad. But I did also learn things, so that was like helpful.
1: That's a good combination of pleasure yeah. and uh, learning. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, so so we spoke a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, c- can you give us a, a quick introduction, just so we refresh our memories, who you are, what yeah, you do? Yeah, who am I?
0: So uh, my name is Ryan, and I'm uh, currently a PhD student at Erasmus University. I work exclusively on a project called the ghost work project which is an erc funded project over the next few years that is looking really closely at uh what are the conditions and the experiences of people who do what we call micro work which is a form of crowd work or platform work you know often done through very different kinds of platforms most famously amazon's mechanical turk Clickworker. but uh how does doing this kind of job under these you know uh, remote conditions these sort of precarious conditions also sometimes the low pay Uncertainty of job availability. How does that impact them? You know does it impact them right? and so we've been uh, like I said I was in Italy to interview some Italians uh, We've got about 138 interviews with people over the course of the last six months or so uh, So pair that with about 5200 responses to some earlier and We have a really big data set that we're really excited to start coding and, and getting into and picking apart what
1: this Relationship is but so that's what I do and, and do you have, like, a, a first, like, feeling of where it's going to go? Or yeah, so something?
0: one of the things that we were actually in, in the revision process, so a journal liked our paper, but they said, you need to rewrite it, and I said, well, I'll just make a copy and send it back, but no. Um, uh, so we're, we're revising it right now, because one of the things we found earlier on for those survey results was that just looking at the data and the indicators that we have of things like the diversity of workers and the different ways that they're dependent on this kind of work, um, we did what statistical thing we did a little latent class analysis and what that allows us to do is just plug in indicators and then rather than have us impose groups upon the data the data shows us what groups emerge Uh, and so the most effective one we found was this sort of like four model class analysis which really showed us that the dependency of these workers really differs by some key indicators when we start talking about how much this work contributes to their personal income what kinds of household incomes they have their age their education the amount of hours that they're putting into the work and so that's what we're starting with right now is that not only are these workers diverse, but they diversify along group lines sometimes too. And what's really interesting is that the largest group is the least dependent and the least committed to this kind of work. And what's important to take away from that is that these kind of working environments are ecosystems, right? You know, platforms respond to um, feedback, they respond to user engagement. And when the majority of your people that work through these platforms, spend less than a year on it. They don't really commit too much. That crowds out sometimes the experience of maybe some of the people who are less vulnerable, which at least in our sample turned out to be the smaller population. And and by most vulnerable, I mean these are people that are are most dependent on this kind of work for maybe a living. This maybe their full time job. It's maybe uh, the only kind of work that they can do because of either mental, physical health constraints or employment market constraints. You know, we talked to quite a few. You might say, uh, you know, uh, migrants and and workers who had come from other places finding it hard to break into like the German job market or to the Italian job market. So uh, those are some of the early findings which are really interesting to see how these groups break out and then to see uh, what we'll do in the next portion with these interviews that I've been conducting is to really investigate, okay, How do the relationships then break out? Do different classes of workers, we might say, do they experience these conditions differently? And does that have therefore a different impact on their well-being? Which is important when we look down the line at writing policy, because if the dependent group that we have is really the most vulnerable and they experience it as the most exploitative or the most stressful, the most straining, but they're only 8% of the workforce and the remaining workforce is just like, ah, no, it's fine, we don't really care that's something we have to consider right and we have to think okay well, how do we write policy that is beneficial both for workers that is beneficial for the corporations that you know accepts the role of this kind of platform work within our kind of employment market in europe and because that's what we're specifically looking at we're just looking at the eu yeah
1: and what would be your your like main goal so so you're doing a lot of research and, and things are popping up especially going towards like the, the new type of economy where we're going towards what would be your goal to use this information for
0: what I would love to do, and, and just call me uh, a little bit idealist, but I think I'm a PhD student, so I'm allowed to be, um, uh, is I would really like to help inform the EU's efforts towards writing policy because they're already on that road. You know, There are already directives geared at improving the platform working conditions. But what we see is that a lot of that uh, effort is really informed heavily and a lot of the research behind it is really informed heavily by the experiences of the more visible workers right so drivers for ride sharing like uber or delivery folks people who you see in the street right who you can readily say ah this is platform work we get it but there's this much larger body of people who are kind of hidden online and they're working in really important facets fueling our our, our Google search engine optimization, they're fueling our translation processes, right? So many of the tasks that these people do on a daily basis are geared towards AI and machine learning, right? Uh, uh, providing training materials or refining algorithmic processes. and. That constitutes a huge part of our future, I think, right? So much of our sort of social infrastructure is moving in that direction. And it's being constructed by platforms we don't have insight into and by workers who don't necessarily know what they're doing all the time, don't get clear instruction, right? Are doing the best that they can to provide good work. And so, from our perspective, it, it really is like, look, we want conditions to be better in this platform work, but not just because at times it can be exploitative, but really taking a nuanced approach and saying that there are benefits, there are drawbacks. But we also need to see that this work is diverse. There are multiple forms of platform work and this microworking that I focus on is just one, but we feel it's important because it's hidden. And so if we can bring that a little bit into the light and get more consideration for the workers and the kind of work that they do, um, I, that would be a great benefit. If even just a couple policymakers listen and go, yeah, you know what, microworking might require a little bit more or a little unique policy attention. And especially when we start talking about like transposing EU level directives at the national level, because that's really where I think our information can be most helpful because we have looked at the different, to an extent. Uh, We have looked at uh, different uh, countries, you know, so I've interviewed people in Portugal, Germany, Italy, Spain, and we can see that economic conditions and cultural conditions do have an influence. Now, what they are, I can't say yet, haven't broken the data out, and we also were not really aiming for a you know uh, sort of a a comparative case study pitting country against country but we can already see that that's a major theme right that the uh, employment structure and the employment conditions bear heavily on how this work is experienced and whether it's experienced at all so uh, yeah important stuff going down the line maybe a little bit of policy influence uh, also, I would just like to have a PhD and start working as a as a professional academic. So that's that's maybe the big goal
1: for me. Yeah. So that, that's two goals in, in one type yeah, of research. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> if,
0: it, if I do what I'm supposed to, I'll meet both those goals, which would be
1: amazing. Yeah. And what, what does platform work mean, uh, just like in, in layman terms?
0: Oh, that's a, oh, man, that's a really great question. So uh, I, I think the most basic way to break it down is that platform work is work that is mediated by an online agent, right? So you have a platform that... Brings together demand and supply. You now you have Uh, The classic example from our work is MTurk, right? Uh, Amazon uh, created this program internally at first to handle some things, but then they opened it up back in like 2008 or so for um, uh, the public to work with. And what they do is they open their job wall, their forum, their platform for uh, requesters, right? Clients to propose tasks. Hey, I need a huge data set sorted. Hey, I need surveys taken. I need images categorized. I need um, product opinions tested or provided and then they also on the other end they allow just everyday users people who would be on the internet to uh, create a profile and to perform those jobs and what they what they do is they bring the two together they have this big job wall users can go on and they can see the jobs that they're eligible for that they qualify for and then they can apply to perform those jobs platform that's that's our specific form of platform work when we think about that in other forms right you could think of uber as a platform uber is also the intermediary right so at the heart of this platform work is this intermediary relationship that brings a labor force that is large most likely global international uh, uh, into the uh, yeah into the reach of companies that otherwise might never have gotten to reach that and I know that sounds like I'm a huge uh, platform proponent I'm not against pr- platforms at all um, I just I am attentive to both sides I try to be
1: yeah. it, it, but it, it should work it to the benefit of both the worker and the um the, the one who assigns to the project exactly, right? yeah, and, and
0: you know, if you've uh, watched the news recently over the last ten years or so, you can see that you know certain platforms like Uber necessarily have had challenges with that, and and f- for good reason and to good end, I think workers have been able to find representation and and challenge that model, right? Because the the basic platform model is literally like we don't have any overhead, we have very little uh, uh, sort of involvement, we really only bring these two together, you know, and so that. Yeah, sometimes lends itself to uh, flaws in a sense in the model, but yeah. It,
1: it, was, a, it was a big um, issue in the Netherlands mm-hmm. for, um, I think for those like uh, quick delivery guys mm-hmm. um, and for um, food delivery services yeah. because they didn't really hire any staff in the delivery part because uh, they were all like freelancers. Right. Uh, which meant that they would have to pay for their own uh, insurance and for their own pensions. Um, And so I think a judge ruled that they should either be hired or get better contracts because the company should protect them as workers. But on the flip side, I had a conversation, I think it was like a year ago in Spain, uh, with one of the bigger recruitment agencies in Europe. Um, And they said where we see, especially younger people and younger employees, move towards is no longer a career. Mm -hmm. Uh, No one under the age of 30 aspires to work somewhere longer than five years, (laughs) let alone 20, 30, 40 years. Um, Those are like milestones that no one's going to reach anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And what they want to do is they want to work on a project that that fits their skill set. Um, and then just finish the project and move on to a different project. It yeah. uh, could be at the same employer, it could be somewhere completely different. Uh, but I, I see that the country, especially like the whole of Europe, isn't ready for that type of flexibility. Do, do you think?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic uh, a point to make is because, you know, what you talk about with, uh, so when we talk about employment relationship uh, identification, right, this is kind of the core issue that the EU is concerned about, the misidentification of these workers as freelance or as self-employed, when in reality, they the company controls the hours that they work, controls the tasks, controls their pay. Um, but on the flip side of that, we do see people drawn to this kind of platform work for exactly what you're talking about, the flexibility, the ability to stay home, do remote work, the diversity of the tasks, you know, and there are there are platforms that uh, cater towards more, uh, maybe we would say, sophisticated forms of that. You know, some of the platforms that I look at are relatively straightforward. They have simple tasks that many users can accomplish. But then you have freelance platforms like Upwork, you know, uh, who, who are, where freelancers and, and self-employed can actually go and sell their services and find diverse projects and yeah, work for a little while and then move on to the next. And you know, uh, the. That flexibility is great, and we do, we do see that, but your point about Europe not being ready for it has been really interesting, and that's something that's come out of the interviews, um, especially when I was in Italy. So one of the things we found talking to some of the Italians, and again, this is all b- cursory, right, was that uh, y- when you try and talk about, oh yeah, this is what I do, I work online, I work through a platform, I do this kind of work, they go, okay, but when do you get a real job? You know, like when, when, when will you finally get a real job like why not just get a real job here you know and that's actually a consistent point that happens across countries you know oftentimes people go is that work well that's a hobby or that's like that's nothing you're just doing this but uh, the challenge there also has repercussions because if you know just socially we're not really seeing it as work it becomes very hard to then sort of um governmentally or or bureaucratically see as work. And, you know, the Italians were very uh, straightforward with this. And it was something that had, again, only mildly come up in some of the other countries, but the Italians were very forceful with it, which is really cool to talk about, is they were like, I don't know what to do with taxes. You know, uh, they are like, I am am freelance. I am not freelance. My tax accountant said file, said don't file. We don't know what I am. I don't fit anywhere. And the work that I do is... uh, sometimes socially looked down upon, but also just sort of swept or neglected by bureaucratic structures and, and some of these things. And that's, again, why the EU has really taken a pointed effort to address that kind of issue, the contractual side of it. And hopefully that will make Europe or the EU a little bit more flexible or at least give it a template because I think that's the first thing we really need is we need some kind of framework that is a little bit widespread to begin to understand this work and to shape it so that countries like Italy and Portugal and other places can begin to fit it into their you know, more national structures and recognize it as work if that's you know, you know, relevant for
1: them. It, it, it's. I think personally, it, it's work. As long as you do something and you get paid in either money or whatever, it's work. Um, it, it's also called the gig economy, right? Yes. In like I, I don't really like that term because yeah. it kind of sounds like you're like a clown performing tricks. Mm-hmm. But you're just doing flexible work, yeah. and you're picking the work that you want to do, yeah, yeah. Uh, which which kind of fits the the younger mindset. I think mm-hmm. people just want to be more flexible and just want to try different things. Yeah. Um, one of the problems is indeed like you said it's taxes Um, because i saw that during the pandemic i I hate talking about the pandemic but this is a good example of that is where you had a lot of people who used to work as freelancers or they like i do i do a lot of speaking engagements Um, but if there's no speaking engagements then you need to find different type of things to do I've got stuff to do, uh, but there's a lot of people that said, I, I work on gigs, I work on shows, or I'm a musician. So now they needed to find a real job, as they said <laughs> between quotes. Um, they needed to find like an actual job as an employee. Yeah. But the problem is, if they combined that with freelance work, then you would get um, um, uh, an extra tax amount um, at the end of the year because you had both an employer and then you've got like some sort of a discount rule which then doesn't apply because you're also a freelancer Mm -hmm. so you need to pay extra taxes because you work two jobs. Um, So on the tax form it says two jobs, in social life it says half a job. Um and that's and that's where where it, it kind of doesn't really work, uh, especially in the Netherlands because we've got so many rules um, uh, it's it's difficult to be flexible on the working side um, and it's also because the government doesn't understand how this should work, and uh, they've got this like set tax frame, everything works the same and has been working for like the same way like the last fifty years um so yeah I, I think it should start there to make it more um accepted for people on the social side as it it falls on the, the jobs Uh, regulation now Um, but it's also easier for people to move into that type of work because they don't have that fear for taxes anymore I would if I if I would go into into a job as an employee I would probably consider not working for myself anymore just to avoid the complicated taxes absolutely we we spoke with a woman in in
0: Italy who she had a a really fantastic business herself but then when it became too complicated to run her own business and to do uh, the the platform working the the crowd work that she did um, she actually moved away from her own personal business. And that also impacted her crowd working because she says, look, in, in Italy, you have a, I think it's called a codice fiscale, which is like your your financial ID, right? But when you incorporate or when you have a business, you get a separate one that comes with new restrictions and new sort of uh, requirements. And so to not have to get that next level, she was intentionally working less and, and, and accruing less earnings than she possibly could have were she to work more simply because the change in that tax structure was so big that it really devalued and almost made moot the the earnings he was getting so was, uh, the the jump in taxes that i have to pay eats up more than 60% of the earnings that I make, which are already really low through this work. You know, So there are quite a few things that have to happen, not just, I think, in the government structure, recognition of this kind of work, how we think about incorporating it into existing structures, but also at the platform level and, and how we consider the value of this work and how we pay it, how we understand it. One uh, idea that I've been batting around and is just sort of like a a personal pet project, but there are a couple things, I think there's a little bit happening in Finland and a little bit happening in San Diego, is I've always wondered, well, what if the government had their own platform? How could that, what would we get from that? If we can standardize things like minimum wages, if we can standardize contract templates, right? Would that be maybe a first step towards bringing commercial platforms in line, rather than simply trying to regulate commercial platforms to a certain extent, which can be quite difficult, especially in the EU, right? What if we set an example and set a template and the government then offers that and it becomes a competitor, But again, this is a little bit out there, so, you know, but it was a good opportunity to share that with you
1: but are, aren't you afraid that the government would interfere too much with the working side uh, yeah, it, it, they could yeah
0: that that's and, and so i've chatted about this with a couple of workers myself and that's something that they bring up you know and i and i get that i just yeah i i just think about you know a, a government's ability to subsidize this kind of work and to provide that and then to offer to companies a a, a, a uh, yeah, a format, an arena where they can assure good work, the like quality work. They can also, you know, I, it wouldn't be something to incorporate with like the the unemployment structures or the welfare structures because I think then we really get you almost get into like a uh, an indentured servitude type um, situation, which we would stay away from. But having a separate platform where you can say, look, uh, yeah, you're looking for jobs. You can also get maybe some discounts to go into this work where the government offers guaranteed employment and guaranteed quality of kind of work. But again, that, that is so uh, abstract at the moment at a high level. But th- there are real concerns for interference, I think. Yeah, but there are also real concerns for interference in existing structures, yeah. you know, and especially with the way that... Uh, the way that some of uh, the EU uh, uh, policies are looking and the directives are looking, uh, a lot of it right now is so geared at avoiding that government interference that it almost puts the entire onus on the worker, right? And that's a little bit for, for me and, and for our project, I think, a little bit where we want to challenge that and say, man, take a little bit more responsibility, right? That here are some things that workers would like to see. Here's how we can maybe balance that and then you know execute the two because if... If your answer to a misclassification of a working relationship is like, hey worker, take, them, take the platform to court, G- good luck, yeah. right? Like who's, how, how what, what resources do they have to do that? Like it's great that you've said they can do that, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's not really a realistic or effective solution. So uh, I think it, it is a tricky situation to balance benefit and interference.
1: Yeah. I think on the, on the plus side, if it would be regulated by the government, then at least they would understand the platform. Yeah. And they could make regulations based on their own understanding mm-hmm. rather than trying to force their rules on an existing platform that just doesn't work. And they just didn't figure out how it works. Yeah. Um, I think that's the, that's the same for what we've seen with the, the, the guys in the, in the Netherlands and, and the companies there, mm-hmm. um, where they just don't understand how those models work. So they try and enforce existing regulations on like new innovations, yeah. and that just doesn't match. No, they don't. They they don't fit, right? And that's. Uh that's a difficult thing
0: to be confronted with as a regulator. Is that your tools don't work, right? Uh, because it, you know, what it, it, uh, if all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail, right? Yeah. And, and and the problem right now is that not only is it not a nail, but it's digital. So if you hammer something, you're just breaking it, <laughs> right? It, it's you broke the computer, the laptop, the phone, whatever. Um, but I think that's again where our project hope looks to be helpful is to say, look. Uh, Here's how you can better understand not just how the platforms are working because there's a lot of research on that side looking at how platform structures work looking at their business models their payment structures, but looking at how workers react to that how they experience it, right, because if we're really concerned about improving the conditions, it's going to take a two prong effort looking at the worker side, but then also looking at the platform side, because, you know, th- something we've seen in places like Spain, we don't want to overregulate and drive these platforms out because when the business model is no longer successful, they will go elsewhere, right? And we've seen that with a lot of things. In fact, one of the things we hear from workers quite often is since the pandemic, not to talk about it again, but it's really relevant to our, our, our situation at the moment, yeah, um, uh, there's been this really large influx of workers from Southeast Asia and Central Asia working on the platforms. You know, the the um, uh, the Philippines has taken up so much of this AI and machine learning work as a as a community on these platforms, that European workers are like, wow, that's that's where all the jobs are going, and it's it's so interesting to see that all these issues of labor arbitrage and um, uh, you know wage concerns that we see in what we might call real jobs in like more physical employment, they echo in this platform world. They echo in the online environment. So, you know there's a debate on the academic side about whether this kind of platform work is something new or if it's an extension of older and if you can't already tell i sort of fall on the side that this is an extension of you know existing piecemeal kind of work uh for me and so a lot of the old issues that plague it we're still plagued by but we have to find like you said innovative solutions that account for the diversity of problems that we now face
1: right and innovation needs needs um, a form of freedom right to evolve um and and you're talking about academics how does this reflect on like the academic side on like younger students um how do they they work towards this new type of economy
0: oh man that's so that is (laughs) another great question because that's something uh, you know through some of our courses um, uh, that we've actually talked about students you know we I uh, I work in a, a, um, a master's program currently called the uh, uh, Organizational Dynamics in a Digital Society. And in that, we talk to students a lot about technology, how we understand technology, how technology impacts um, work and life and, and society. And one of the things for the, the courses that I, I, I teach and work with is students come out and they go, okay, this was a cool course. What do I do with it, right? What, like, how can this prepare me or how did this prepare me to do what you said, be innovative in this world that is uh, that is new and is changing. And what I think is, you know, one, I, I recommend platforms to all my students. I'm like, go, go do a little bit, make some cash on the side. It'll be a great experience for you. And you can see what kinds of work is out there. That's a little or a little known element of this and something that I've only really come to find out myself from talking to these workers is that one thing they love about some of these platforms, um, the, the good ones, uh, is that they get to experience things before they hit, the market, right? They're doing software testing. They're doing product development. They are on the front lines of machine learning, natural language processing, right? So they get to be involved in this cutting edge and they love it, whether they're young students who are working on it, middle-aged folks who are like supplementing an existing income, or especially older workers who thought that maybe they had aged out of being involved in the cutting edge. Now they find themselves at the forefront of technology at 56, 62, right? Uh, It's an amazing experience for them. I tell my students, check that out. Go look, because what's happening in this platform world is what's happening in the industry, right? And so what is being built here is what is going to be brought out to the rest of the public in the six, nine months, a year or two. And so if you want a taste of what kind of tech and what kind of innovation is needed, look at what kinds of projects people are working on through these platforms. Now, is that the only place? Of course not. It's just one small (laughs) way to do it, but it's, uh, yeah, something I'm immersed in. So that's kind of where I... I, I try to bring students into that frame of mind, right? Like innovation is, this it's a human process, right? So the technology that we have helps facilitate that. The platforms expose us to that. The projects expose us to that. But what we try and do as educators, I think, is facilitate the fact that you have to go do that. And the, the human effort required to do that requires some skills as well. So we maybe try and help them build that.
1: And do you, do you feel that I think students might be ready for, you know, that type of mindset and, and going towards that type of work. Um, it's easier for them as well to experience it, especially growing up with technology around them. So it's, it's an easy uh, form of access towards that type of work, right? Um, but do you feel like schools and the educational system is ready for that transition? Mm. Are they being prepared to go that way? So I can, I can only speak from my experience
0: and I think uh, with, with the best of intents, um, the institutions that I have worked at and, and work at are making the best strides that they can, right? But we're learning things about preparing students for this kind of innovative world that they have to exist in, this kind of world where technology is taking over some maybe more fundamental type jobs or tasks. And, you know, people are being asked to uh, fill roles that maybe didn't exist before or that uh, f- traditional education doesn't really prepare you for. And so that's why programs like ours exist, I think, is, is to begin to bridge that gap and to uh, expose students to different ways of thinking. And so are we there yet as a university, let's say? I don't think so, you know, but uh, the incorporation of technology and the realization of both its limits and uh, horizons, uh, we could say, uh, is something that we are actively interested in. Now the question is how effective are we at uh, addressing the challenges and building up the benefits? But that's uh, something to be seen, I think.
1: But it all starts with the research that you're doing, right? You need the insights first before you know where to put the action.
0: Right, and that's something that, uh, you know, the, we'll, we'll say the last few years. The last few years really showed us that uh, there's a lot to learn about how Education in this new environment, and, and by the new environment, let's talk uh, remote education. Let's talk technologically facilitated. Let's talk, um, uh, you know, technologically enhanced. Right, because again, technology is not necessarily the end result in education. It's it's a it's a tool. Right, it's something we use and we can use towards certain ends. Um, but what we find is that. Where there are benefits, there are challenges, as I said before, and there are different kinds of education that receive different kinds of benefits and different kinds of challenges from this new uh, sort of baseline, right? Because that's that's also something that I think not just universities, but society is having a harder time accepting if you're above a certain age maybe or you have a certain working experience is that there are baseline skill sets required you need to be able to to search you need to be fluent in internet right you need to be net savvy right using different technologies creative technologies social technologies right and when we say technologies we're not limited to just hardware right we can be talking about programs we can talk about applications we can talk about uh you know efficiency tools and all this massive suite of things that we have but uh, you're asking a generation that is less familiar with that to teach old, to t- to teach important things to a new generation that is more fluent with it so i think there's a little catching up that uh we as educators sometimes have to do with that but uh yeah If that that follows. Yeah, Yeah. it does.
1: I think it's also like bridging the gap between um, what we are used to, like maybe the older generations have a certain way of working and a certain way of looking at the world. Um, Younger generations are more fluent with technology, especially like newer technologies. I think they bridge each other's uh, gaps Mm. in that sense because... I think um, the educational system is learning from the input from students. Mm -hmm. Students still need to understand why we work towards a certain way. I I don't think it's bad to see where we come from to understand where we're going. Um, So I think that's a a good mix and we've we've, uh, sort of worked together on a project Mm -hmm. uh, where we um, worked with a group of students from uh, from the university. who were already looking to understand how technology impacts humans and how humans impact technology, Um, and they already understood that in order to make the transition, you need to understand both sides. Uh, You need to understand where we're going and what we're disrupting. Um, You cannot disrupt something that you don't fully understand. Um, And they already see that. And they started to sense what you just said, that technology is just a tool to get somewhere. It's just a hammer, right? Um, And I think that's one of the most important things to keep in mind is that technology is nothing more than just a tool. It's a solution to a potential problem. Um, And what we're seeing is we're, we're creating a lot of, uh, solutions for non-existing problems. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's something that happens
0: often. Well, this this takes us actually. This is a point that we talked about the last time I, I spoke with you. Is you know this is creating solutions for non-existent problems, right? And I, I think something uh, yeah, related to, to that is also creating non ex- creating um, just obstacles for no reason within education, right? So what you mentioned about bridging the gap is really important because uh, we have to. At one time, accept that change is coming. Technology is useful. People are going to want to work with it. It can make things better. But if we're going, if we complain about the challenges it presents, if we complain about online education as not as effective or less um, engaging, and whatnot, we also have to respect the fact that are we using it to the fullest capacity that we can, or are we simply trying to use it in a way that we have used things in the past, and we're not ourselves adapting to what could be there, right? And that's this idea of you know, uh, the, the human part of innovation, right? So uh, not just worried or being head down into innovating the technology, but it also requires you to be innovative in your use of it, right? So, you know, if you want to use a creative suite like, like Adobe, right, you know, we they have, this massive suite of tools to use, but if you don't think about what kinds of creativity you can bring to the plate, none of those things are useful for you. You can just get upset that they're difficult to use, that Photoshop has too many options, that blah, blah, blah. And you know, you really, as an educator, can run yourself into a rut and not do your students uh, a lot of good. I, I do think we have to be careful on the education side from trying to throw too many tools at a situation. And that's, I think, your point that's really good is, before we disrupt something, we need to see to what end and and in what ways. uh, What what are we trying to hold on to or achieve? And how does that allow us to uh, integrate these two things together?
1: And they need to understand, indeed, the the tools could be overwhelming, uh, but you need to figure out what applies to you. I think Photoshop is a good example. I'm no professional whatsoever when it comes to Photoshop, so I just master the the pieces that I need for certain tasks. Um, There's so many options that I've never seen before, or I know they exist, but I have no idea to apply them, but that's because I don't need them as soon as I need them or as soon as I run into a problem, I'm going to do some research on how that tool works on that specific part of of Photoshop. Um, And I think that's the key for technology. Uh, There's so many options that we can create so many things, but why would we create things that don't offer a specific solution? Um, And on the other hand, we do have so many uh, solutions, first figure out what the problem is and then Cherry pick what you need in that technology, Um, but like I said, I do think that a lot of younger generations start to understand that. But there's also like a learning curve, right? Because it's going so fast. Technology, of course, is is growing rapidly. Mm -hmm. Um, So many new things are coming out every day. So it's hard to keep up. And I think people are starting to understand that you cannot own or understand everything. Mm -hmm. You just need to cherry pick what you need. Um, So that learning curve, I think people are starting to understand it and it's going faster as well because Mm -hmm. we're now starting to see, especially with the remote working, we were confronted by it um, and of course, a lot of people had complaints for their own personal reasons, which is obvious, yeah. uh, less personal contact with people around you. Um, I've spoken to a Spanish student who was here for one year. She said, I've never been to college. I've only been stuck in my dorm room, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, which is not why she took up the adventure to go abroad for, for her studies, yeah. um, which I understand. But this is th- that's the gap that I was talking about. That's, yeah. that's just a, the generational gap that we need to overcome. Um, And now we're starting to understand that it's easier to be a remote worker uh, or that you could go hybrid. You could go to work two days a week and then, you know, work from home three days, which leaves you time to do other things. Uh, We just need to learn to adopt the new technology.
0: And that's a really important point that you make there is that you know hybrid working or hybrid education has has benefits has challenges but one of the biggest challenges and obstacles to it that i see from the educational standpoint is that we think that it will just work right we think that you can just take a class and say okay monday and tuesday are online and then wednesday through friday are in person right that's that doesn't work right there are certain uh, and, and something you and I had, had talked about before this, this episode was there are certain kinds of education that are supported and that are not supported in the best ways by uh, technology or by maybe we would say in the real being in person and when we talk about like knowledge uptake conveying information presenting information okay uh, technology is fantastic at that right we have so many suites and apps that allow us to present information in dynamic ways and gamify things so that you know different parts of your um, uh, you know your your intellect are engaged and your learning processes are, are activated that that's phenomenal Uh, But we can't just say, okay, well, that'll be Monday and Tuesday and then, you know, Wednesday and Thursday, it'll it'll just be the same. It's not. We have to think more about the content and say, okay, what parts of education are best served by this sort of maybe remote context and what parts are best served by maybe a more in-person, old school, I don't want to say, but a more interactive kind of hands-on way because this uh, educating to know, fantastic with technology. I, I can... If all I have to do is give students quizzes, test their knowledge, or uh, convey facts to them, I, I can do those quickly, efficiently, and effectively online. That's really great. I can set up a, a, a Zoom call, I can record videos, I can uh, provide them with a number of things that allow them to use the resources at hand to best uptake the technology, or best uptake the information. But what I call it's kind of like educating to innovate Is much harder through that right and so what we need to find is some balance how do we prioritize educating to be creative educating to collaborate because we talk about collaborative tools right but simply being able to talk someone you know at their home through zoom or through ms teams or whatever doesn't guarantee collaboration there are practices that occur you know one of the things that we run into the most is that you know when you're in one of these online environments it's very stilted, the engagement sometimes, right? And if it's not stilted, it's a chaotic mess, right? If everyone is just trying to talk and engage and like you would in a classroom or something like that, that becomes untenable, right? But the opposite is also not ideal, where students are muted, right, waiting their turn to speak, you know, it, it goes back to these like old lecture days of like the 1950s and, and before, right, where it was almost like, be quiet, raise your hand, when you get called on, you can speak. We don't want to go, we don't want to do that, right. We do want a dynamic interaction, we do want collaboration, but we also have to realize that if we thought silence was deafening within a classroom, when people are thinking, when people are dealing with a difficult topic and trying to come up with an answer, it is all-consuming, overpowering blackout in the digital environment. Quiet on a Zoom is is literally like the single worst thing. I, I think everyone's anxiety goes through the roof when nothing is being said and we're all just staring at each other uh, on our little screens. So my point with that is when we think about adopting education to technology, we have to think a little bit more closely about the core of education, the ways of education, the ends of that kind of education and you know uh, I, I think this current moment is great for posing that challenge to us. Yeah.
1: Right. Because I, I think, and, and we've said it before, indeed, before we started the show, um, is that you can innovate in multiple ways. We can innovate on the technology side. We can innovate on the human side. I personally feel that we have mastered the technology side, at least for a little bit. We know how to innovate on technology. We know how to optimize Zoom. We know how to, you know, roll that out. Um, I think it's, it's, it's important to focus on innovating on the human side as well. Um, what does it mean for a human being if you work two days from home? Um, how can you make sure that you are interacting with people when you're not seeing them physically, what we are used to? Um, so how do you feel that we could do the innovation on the human side? Like, where should we start? Hmm.
0: I, I think, so I, I, was, I was given a book um, recently, um, by by a grad student, which is which is rare. I took it as a big compliment that uh, she gave this to me. Um, but she gave me this book called *The Courage to Create*, and it's by Rollo May, and it's from like 1974, 1975. So it's it's been out there. It's got some legs. Um, and there's the the whole discussion there is like, what is creativity? Where does it come from, right? And uh, the the core takeaway for me is that. Uh, Creativity is not simply inspiration, right? So, and we can we can replace creativity with innovation here because I th- I think they're very similar, right? Um, if not identical concepts, um, but creation is not simply inspiration. It's not something that just drops and happens to you, right? There is actually a process that occurs where you give conscious, dedicated thought to a problem, to a situation, and then and then you give yourself some rest. You create some space, and your unconscious does this work and then you reap the benefits of your creative sort of energies. And I think that ability to invest the resources and then create space and teach people how to do that process, how to their process is at the root of teaching to innovate, right? Teaching the human side of innovation. Okay. And, you know, when we talk about being attentive to how we adapt towards different ways of work, I I think this applies regardless, right? What we need is we need spaces where people can challenge things and say, okay, what are options we can take? Let's take some dedicated time to think hard about a situation and then see what creative solutions we come up with. But, like for our example the university didn't really have an opportunity to do that when we had to move to like remote learning right we had planned an entire course load on friday um, that was ready to go for in class and then friday night we got the notice hey by the way on monday we're going digital so do it right and uh, we weren't really given time to innovate or, or do creative things but we had time now Right? And we have people making dedicated or paying dedicated attention to these issues and to these things. And so I'm hoping that now what we need is the space to experiment. Okay, And I think education offers that. I think there are op- also, I think there are corporations that are experimenting with that, that are trying to flesh out what works best for us. What are these different working dynamics? And that's something that I was interested, like I said, with talking to you about is You know, from the university side, we forget that, you know, we're not just a feeder, right? We don't just provide things to the rest of the world. We can also take and see from corporations, how are they using education and training? How are they creating space to adapt to this changing work environment, to be innovative in this work environment? And like you said uh, uh, before, specifically on the human side, how are they enabling their people to do that? because I think what we can contribute with like students for example is we can educate them in this process of creativity. Take control of your creativity, understand how it works, understand where this innovation has its roots and comes from and then apply that to whatever sector or whatever thing you want. You know students who come through my courses I'm like I'm a sociologist, I'm a digital sociologist, If you don't want to do that, that's totally cool. Like, I am not trying to make you be that. I am not trying to lead you down my path. I really don't care where you go, but I want to give you tools to be successful wherever that is. And for me, that means providing you with human skills and your ability to look at what you bring as a person to a suite of technologies a adaptive and dynamic changing work environment right so uh, yeah I think that's that's where we start with the human innovation is for us we start educating people on creativity and creating spaces whether it's in education or in the the corporate world for
1: experimentation
0: at the, at the personal level
1: I, I really liked it because I when I was younger I, I've been taught that um, you You never are the, the work that you do you 're your own individual um, because cir- um, uh, um, your uh, environment can change uh, circumstances can change your work can change um, and I think if you understand yourself as a human being then you 're able to move towards you know whatever happens you 're flexible to Um, to maneuver those changes Mm -hmm. Um, and I I was brought up um, in a family that is dedicated to work and they always say I am a and then they name the work that they do right Uh, because I am a carpenter no you're an individual and the job that you have is being a carpenter Um, but they stuck so much to it that they were inflexible and I think it's it's important especially for for younger generations but also for for like maybe our generation or the ones after us um, is that If you understand what it means to be a human being, and if you have human skills, then it doesn't matter what type of work you do because you can apply yourself to that. Um, And I think the change that we're seeing right now and which is going so fast is that jobs are being replaced by technology, uh, which could be a really good thing because most of the jobs that are now being replaced are are easier jobs, mundane tasks, Um, not really um, particularly for human skills, Um, it's just the work that we do, the work that we're used to. Um, But if you, you are stuck to that job and the job is gone, thanks to technology, then you are gone. Your identity is gone. Uh, But if you're a human being and you know how to be innovative on yourself and if you know how to be creative, then it doesn't really matter what type of work the world offers. You will be able to fit in anywhere you want to. And I think that also applies to the whole platform work that if you move towards that more flexibility, it doesn't really matter what they offer or what the platform has to offer. You are able to apply your personal skills on whatever job or task or or, uh, project fits. Exactly And I think that that would be, for me, that's uh, the main message that we also spoke to uh, to all your students about, um, is that you should understand how humans innovate, how you can innovate as a human being. Mm -hmm. um, Because technology will happen. And if you understand yourself, then you will be able to move in line with that technology. Uh, You don't have to be dependent on it. And you are not your job. You are your own individual, and you do what you do. And that can change. but it's, it's interesting to see, and, and it's also something you just said, is that technology is just a tool to, to get there. Um, and, and I think that we need to understand that the differentiation between technology skills and human skills. And one of the things that was so interesting um, about the project that we did with your students yeah. is that they were really interested in seeing how Um, not only because the question was how does technology uh, apply to humans and what is the effect that it has they were also interested in seeing the other way around Mm -hmm. how is technology influenced by human beings and our behavior Um, and and it it gave some interesting insights and and they actually figured out that um, some organizations just aren't ready for some uh, part of technology on the innovation side, they need to innovate on their human side first. They've got so many skills in-house and they're just looking at the technology side. You know, we need to innovate, uh, but they think about innovating on the technology side. Yeah. Um, so it was really interesting to see that they were really focused on looking at the skills that people have. Um, companies that already had so many skills that could be exploited on like a positive side, People being creative and not um, being used as a creative human being, but just as like a flesh and blood robot. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting to see. No, this is
0: so. This is something again that I find really important for our future going forward. Um, you know, and I, I, there's a there's a meme that I really like that I'll share in a moment once it becomes more relevant. But when we think about the future of work and the way it's going, just like you said, as we press forward, jobs upon jobs are being uh, not replaced, but taken over. So tasks are, are being taken over by, you know, automated processes or or AI in the in the future, right? And so machine learning is refining all of these processes, so that more dimensions of tasks can't be taken over. And something I always talk about in this regard is that this isn't this isn't pushing humans out of the work again, right? It it it, it doesn't have to, right? Now, if we don't pay attention we could find ourselves there right we could we could find that but i think uh, if we are attentive to this process it's actually a fantastic opportunity right because when we think about enlightenment in a sense or when we really when humans started to really think about the big thoughts right as we at periods in history where we got some free time right so when we talk about ancient greek society right They have organization, they have things like fundamental bases of life start to be taken care of and they can start to sit around the agora and have all these thoughts about philosophy and different things, right? We're finding ourselves in a similar moment, I think, where machine learning and these processes are taking over some of those lower level tasks that... Yeah, we feel bad because now we, we you know, we haven't maybe trained people to do other things and so we feel that that's taking their jobs when in reality, we're exactly right. We haven't trained them and what we haven't trained them to be is we haven't trained them to be cognizant or attentive to the uniquely human things that they bring to work, to employment. And so this this moment that we're in is driving us back to answering the questions of well, what does it mean to be human, right? What are the unique things that we can bring and how... Does our humanness impact the technology that and and the way that it that it moves us forward? And I think that's something where to pull kind of our conversation so far together is it's so important that we can recognize what are the uniquely human skills and where are they best applied within this sort of technological uh, base environment that we've created, right? Because that is the one thing that we will always be able to bring is is the uniquely human side now what is that is always going to be the question refining that finding the the limits and challenging people to uh, to i guess rise to the ch- to the, the the or rise against the obstacles that they will encounter right because it's ex- it, like let's talk about something not so nice it's expensive to train people it's expensive to educate people in creative, innovative, it's easy to teach someone how to use Microsoft Excel and then just send them go, right? Um, But when we don't need them to do that anymore, what do we do, right? There's a reason, there's a history of upper management and, and wages and costs and all these things. So when we start thinking about more critical skills, more human skills, there are going to be different costs associated with that, but we have to be ready to invest in that. And it has more... It has it has farther-reaching implications than just work, and this is where I get to the meme I wanted to tell you about. Is uh, you know, there's uh, um, there's this f- format for memes that always says you know like me say something, and then also me, usually like the counterpoint, right? Uh, and this one is me, you know, uh, why would I bother with a liberal arts education, right, or, or a humanities education? And then the second, also me, how was I supposed to know it was fake news, right? Like, this this ability to see the world and recognize our human engagement in it and recognize the soft skills that apply, you know, STEM is vastly important. I don't want to take anything away from STEM, and I think we're actually reaching a point where a basic STEM education is a, is fundamental to success going forward. You're going to have to have it right whether it's some kind of coding programming or just an intricate understanding of the digital landscape right that's something we can't escape and luckily enough for the youth they're kind of picking it up on their own and independently because they can't escape it which is great now people like me I have to catch up a little bit cuz I didn't grow up in that I- environment so like anytime I want to post an Instagram reel I have to like watch a YouTube video about it or have some 18 year old tell me how to you know use TikTok in a certain way so uh, but i do think we can still rely on old questions about what it means to be human yeah. to, continue to continue to build on these skills that will bring point because those questions are becoming so important again yeah.
1: true yeah i think it's it's also that um it's like two sides i, I think technology um, creates well it doesn't create time but it it, it frees up time to um, help us be more human um Because we we always have our heads stuck in the tasks that we're doing and we're, you know, going we're on and off. We're only off when we're sleeping and then we're on on the jobs. And um, so I think it kind of provides a little bit of time to think and to be more creative and not to worry about processes running because they are now automatic, which is which is perfect. Um, On the other hand, I think it's it needs to be socially accepted to take more time to be human. And I think it it goes back to to the basics that one of the reasons why I, I, I quit my corporate job is that my manager said, if I don't see you sitting behind your laptop, I'm assuming you're not at work. Or you're not working. Um, so talking to someone, brainstorming, drawing up some ideas on on the wall—it's um, not considered work. Uh, but it's—I think—it's the most human thing: is being conscious, thinking, being creative. This takes us back to what I was talking about with creativity
0: and innovation, right? Those are creative tasks. That is how you f- you feed the creative, you know, engine within you, right? You have to. You have to brainstorm, you have to talk, you have to do it, and then you have to create space. If you are nothing but head down in your laptop doing your work, you're not creating space to be creative, to be innovative, to find the solutions, right? You know, here's a plug. Academics take sabbaticals for reasons, right? Like, like It's not just to take a, a long extended vacation. It's to give space for those kind of uh, intellectual endeavors to bear fruit, yeah, just like you're saying.
1: And I, I get that, and, and especially like my, the, the co-founder of, of one of the companies that I run, um, he has the same kind of, um, I wouldn't call it an issue, I would call it a perk, <laughs> uh, because he, he, um, he's unable to just work for eight hours straight. Doesn't feel productive, and it doesn't bring him anywhere. Sure, you can do tasks for eight hours a day, it's not a problem. He's really good at thinking long and hard. He could think for, um, about something for seven hours straight producing new ideas testing them out in his head and if he works for just one hour he could produce more than someone else would in like an entire week just because he took the time to think about how why when what uh rather than just just you know running the task and yeah. doing it because that's something that a machine can do just run the test just do what i tell you just right. run the test go on 24 yeah. 7 don't yeah. think don't take breaks right. um human beings they they need that time and space uh but i think it, it should be more socially accepted to just take a sabbatical yeah. just go out for a week um bill gates um I watched his documentary recently um, because I, I like the way how he goes about reading books, which is important. But he takes a think week once a year and he just brings a bag of books and that's it. And he's just reading, writing down things that he he agrees or disagrees with, with, uh, with the writers. Um, and he's just thinking and just like writing down all the ideas that he has. He probably chucks out like 90% of all his ideas, but yeah, yeah. it's the, the time he gives himself, and of course he has the capital to, you know, go somewhere yeah. to a lake house. <laughs> somewhere and nice, yeah. Sure, but but I think <laughs> the, the, the idea of having a think week or maybe a think weekend, I don't care, but just take time out to, to be human and, and free yourself yeah. of tasks. Yeah. Um, And and to be creative because innovation doesn't happen when we just run our tests, like you said.
0: Right. So there's another another book that I got from an artist friend of mine. Um, It's literally called The Artist's Way, and one of the it's a book to help um, uh, artists. It's it's again another book that has uh, some legs, been around for a while, Uh, and it's something that artists revisit often when they find themselves in a rut or when they find themselves um, you know unproductive or or lacking in, in creativity, and I have tried like four or five times to pick it up and run through the whole thing because it really lays out a framework and a process of here's how to build your creative energies. And you know uh, you, you might be wondering, okay, well, but you work in science. Why do you need to be creative? And I'm like, well, well, because I work in science, right? Like <laughs> I have to be creative, right? Like that's that's a big part of the game. Um, one that's underappreciated, I think. But the the only thing that I've been able to take away and stick with for my own issues is what in this context I would refer to as like a mini think moment. Right? So when we what you described that Bill Gates is doing, taking books and just writing, things like that, one of the first things that the author, and I, her name escapes me, but one of the first things that she recommends is if you're trying to rebuild creativity and, and feel innovative and to engage your, uh, yourself in this way is every morning wake up and write three pages of whatever you want. It can literally be, I don't know what I'm doing, but this is my three pages of writing that I'm doing for the day. Do that and five minutes into it, you will already be starting to do stuff. And the end goal is none of that has to make sense. None of it has to be coherent. You don't ever have to look at it again or anything. But what it did is it created space for your brain to just settle, right? And to dedicate itself to, okay, these things that are running around, let me get them out of my head right? And this is just one way because what I see a think week as is I see that as a meditative moment also. So I'm, I'm not into meditation. I had a friend of mine uh, out visiting from uh, uh, Japan uh, back over the summer. He's doing a, uh, his PhD on Zen philosophy. So he does a lot of meditation. <laughs> and I, I, it, it's impressive. But, uh, you know, when he and I talk about what we gain from our small practices, they're very, they're very similar, right? So uh, for me, yeah, I, I absolutely see the space in that. The, the challenge that I will bring is how can we bring that into a more, uh, yeah, for lack of a better, like corporate environment or, or um, educational environment, right? How can I give my students space to do that? I mean, I'm they've got so many tasks already. I'm not going to task students with writing three pages every morning, but some sort of process like that that I can encourage within them to build that space. And that's something that I'm, I'm trying to do with the current course is to look at, When I have them for these couple hours, once, twice a week, what kind of creative energy can I get in the space? Because I want to sort of bookend it. Like, can I give them some knowledge uptake at the beginning, some space to create and innovate in the middle, and then maybe a little presentation of whatever they were able to get in that moment? And... For me, that is a mini model of what I think broadly, socially, we can start to play with. And to bring this back to your, your idea that you know we need some social acceptance, moving a little bit away from this hustle culture, right? Um, I think we're playing with that. I think I, I'm not again. I'm not up to date on or up to speed on on all the intricacies of this movement. But you know, you see articles about testing out the 40-hour or the four-day work week. You know, you uh, Tim Ferriss wrote the four-day work week back in what 2004, right? Uh, and and only now we're like, oh yeah, maybe that <laughs> maybe that's a more broadly applicable idea. You know, his system it was very unique, but it was pretty cool. But this idea that we can be productive. Um, in in shorter amounts of time and and more so because we've created space. Yeah, it's something neat. I mean I have to admit being an American coming over to Europe and adapting to the European pace was great. You know, when people ask me why did you end up staying in the Netherlands, and I was like, "Oh, because life is so slow here." And the <laughs> Dutch go, "What?" And I'm like, "Yeah, this is great. I can take my time. I can go to a borrel, like all these types of things. Like, this is just uh, super fun. You know, you guys have a real like, you take it easy." And then I go to Belgium, and it's like, "Oh, it's even more, yeah. yeah, yeah uh, I guess uh, enjoying life." But um, I I think that is something. Back to your point. If we're, if we're willing to accept it, technology can really be such a boon in that, like giving us back our lives to an extent where you say, okay, you can be more human and creative and productive and bring us to even further heights of innovation beyond just tech because the tech has taken over this sort of uh, grunt work, we would say, from military background, yeah.
1: It's, it's funny that you mentioned Tim Ferriss and the 4-Hour Workweek <laughs> yeah. because it, it was um, before I, I'm, I'm now reading um, Influence yeah, yeah. Uh, by Cialdini mm-hmm. uh, but before I, I, I again picked up uh, the 4-Hour work week. I, I read it years ago yeah, yeah. Um, but the philosophy indeed it matches this time and, and age because he uh, Tim kind of explains that um, he doesn't hate work he just wants to do less of it yeah. um, to enjoy himself more or do more projects or do things he just enjoys himself with. And he just finds simple solutions and and he is already using or he he was back then already using technology to just support him in that he was um he hired remote workers um who he didn't meet before uh, he just took out a small budget to test their workability and um so he had employees he never met before he had processes automated he had emails automated so he was already playing with the idea of you know uh, earning a living um but Cherry picking what he wanted to do, yeah. uh, which is interesting. And, um, and you mentioned the hustle culture. I, I, I do often look at TikTok if I need to unwind for, <laughs> for just <laughs> half an hour, usually it's more. Um, but um, y- you often see people um, talking about the hustle culture, or you should work more or you should sleep faster. Or um, and you already see young people commenting like, stop with the hustle culture. Family is more important. I need to have fun in my work rather than more money. Uh, so the mindset is starting to shift. Um, And and we do see people look at technology more as a tool to free themselves Uh, which I think it's, a, it's it's a good innovation.
0: It all comes back to this idea of creating space for uh, creativity, innovation, and and being human, like we talked about before. You know, that's something that I think Tim did excellently. Now, th- there are issues with that because uh, so from uh, from our uh, work, we run into a lot of people who came to this kind of platform working, for example, looking for that Tim Ferris digital nomad lifestyle, right? Like, oh well, I'll just do some work in Bali and then be on the beach, and it's like, okay, it's a little it's a little different than that, Brent. Um And that's again not not necessarily what Tim was preaching but that was how a lot of people interpreted it but what he did with all of that was he created space he created space where he could pursue other activities that feed back in you know his time uh, being a Chinese boxing champion or whatever he did his time learning languages like all these all these different things they inform his entrepreneurial spirit they inform his innovation they inform all the things that he's done going forward you know and I think we find people who are able and, and organizations that are able to carve out these kinds of spaces are are especially now becoming more effective right um, uh, there's, there's another one of these books so I've always been I've always been a Simon uh, sinek fan uh, and the, the the one that won me over was the power of why right and we can't get to why unless we've got creative space right because everything that happens around why is task oriented yeah. right building the what the how the the when all of that right. You can't get to why if you're buried in your computer. You can't get to why if you're buried in meetings, right? You can try. People do, right? Educators do. We try and get why education. All us have all these meetings about it. Well, let's create some space. Let's create some space where thought can happen, creativity can happen, and then we'll come back and adapt to it. And I hope, and it's... Something that you mentioned with the, the youth culture, uh, seeing this return to, I, I would venture to say that sometimes it's almost more traditional values, like you know, family, like I want, you know, like I want family, I want to be home with my kids and things like that, and I, I think that's great, but it is such a shock from, you know, coming up against the social culture. But to see that, I think we, we're playing with that, and society is playing with that more, and yeah, I only hope that that continues.
1: So do I, yeah, because it, it brings out the more humane part of being human. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what I meant in the beginning, is that young people now understand the, the old-fashioned values of family and, and free time. Yeah. Um, so that's, I think, the good mix of understanding where we come from, yeah. where we're going. And I, maybe they've even seen that we're just going too fast or too focused on like hustle, making money, never enjoying ourselves, but having so much stuff. Um, people are just moving away from having stuff and having fun is like one of the more important things now which is a, which is a good innovation i think on the human side i,
0: I think so too yeah and you, you know something you mentioned earlier about young people wanting more uh, and this has been a trend for a while right is just uh, younger workers not sticking around so long in certain places wanting to diversify their experiences wanting to work on different projects you know again for some, there's of course the drive to make more money. Like I want to go work for Google, and then I want to work for this and stuff. I get that. There's, I don't take anything away from that. But what I'm happier to see is people who say, "Well, yeah, I'd like to work this, but then I'm gonna move over here because it'll take more time for my family, and then I can invest in this project because I actually have a passion for this." And then like, yeah, you know the 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 uh, the the chasing of the wage the chasing of the income still happens we're, we're not going to get away from that necessarily 100% anytime soon right but to see it tempered is nice yeah,
1: yeah but if it's if it's a personal decision to go into that type of career or if you want to have a, a corporate sure go ahead it's, it's as long as it's a conscious decision yeah. um, and not because you feel you need to go there because society is pushing you there. not because
0: you think this is the only definition of success yeah, because that's I think what we're really talking about is on a broader level, how do we, how are we defining success within society, and and does it have a, a, a sort of dynamic element right now where? having a life can be part of that success
1: yeah i think determining what success is is a personal thing oh sure um because i personally i feel that success also comes from taking care of my family right i've got a young daughter now yeah yeah uh, which is something that um it it, all of a sudden is more important than anything else um (laughs) but but making sure that she has fun in life and does what she loves and and grows up to be a happy person, yeah. um, to me, if, if that happens, then I would consider that a great success. Yeah. Um, if, if my company blows up and my daughter is miserable, then I wouldn't feel as successful oh, as people might think. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think you personally determine what success is. And when you are successful, it's not up to anyone else to decide, but you yourself. Exactly. And, and here,
0: here again, we find ourselves back around at these old Greek questions, right? Like, like what is success? How do we define it? Uh, and, and why does it matter, right? Again, it becomes, uh, you know, the, the march of, of tech frees us up. It frees this up and allows us to pay, if we're willing, because that's something we haven't talked about too much. Uh, but I think is important for us to note is that this attention we're paying to being human and these human questions is hard. You know, you and I, we like it. It's nice. It's, it's 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 of interest to us. It's in my wheelhouse. My my things. But for many people, that's hard because they're like, I just want to take care of my family. I just I just want to work. I just want to have enough money to survive and things like that. And I understand that, right? But. On a, on a social level, I think we all benefit the more we address these questions and the more attention we do pay to this human question going forward.
1: Exactly. Yeah, It makes it more sociable, socially acceptable as well to do the things that you want to do and not come across as someone who isn't willing to work hard or the hustle culture. If we leave that behind and we yeah. determine what success is, and, yeah, exactly. I think we should go that way. Yeah. Um, Ryan, you've been on the show before, so you know it's coming. Yeah. Um, before we, we close our conversation, which was enjoyable again. Yeah, uh, great. So <laughs> thanks yeah. in advance. Um, do you have a, a final thought for me or for the listeners or whoever's out there?
0: Yeah, I I, I was th- thinking about this because I only remembered that this was coming about halfway through our conversation. Uh, and I thought, oh, what am I going to say this time? I, I, I think the thing for me from this conversation and conversations we've had in the past is that, you know, the human side is so important because it's all we have, right? Like we we don't have anything else at the end of the day, you know, you, you are a human being. And if we want to create a space where we capitalize on that, because that we have to recognize that as a unique thing for ourselves. Right. And the reason we have to do that is because things follow along, right? Important things like rights, values, you know, responsibilities, uh, things much broader than what we've maybe talked about today. But they follow along from this simple point that we're human beings and we have a unique kind of role to play in this way. And I would just, yeah, encourage not just myself, my students, you, everybody, invest in that. like. This sounds like a plug for liberal arts education, but get into get into some of those older questions about being a person, being a human being. Invest in investigating values, right, In looking for uh, just what kind of society you want to build. Because you know we talk about a um, we talk about a, a scenario uh, in the future where you know we give AI all of our you know uh, consensus data, all of our public data info, and it says, okay, this is the best way to organize socii- Society. How do we know? How do we know that it is? How does it know? How are we in a position to evaluate what maybe a super intelligent AI tells us later on is the best way to run a democracy or something like that? We have to already have identified human goals on a social level that are really tied to big questions and big values that we've been moving too fast to think about, I think, sometimes. And so what I like about this slower pace is it maybe creates or, or, or facilitates the creation of creative space for us to really pay attention and enjoy being a human being right and not just being a worker or a hustler or a millionaire or a successful doctor or blah blah blah. you know uh, you mentioned your your family I, I come from a Marshall family and so for me it was very much like oh I'm captain so-and-so I'm Colonel so-and-so I'm you know the Colonel's wife or blah 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 you know and so uh, I, I, I recognize that uh, finding an identity outside of that was a big incentive for me to move to academia now, I will also probably end up being like, oh, doc- this is Dr. So if I ever get the, the PhD, that will happen. I'm sure my mother will do that first, but... Yeah, but I think, yeah, my, my f- closing comment is the investment in the human side, whatever that happens to be for yourself, I think that's so worthwhile. And I think the fact that you bring people on and ask these kinds of questions is, yeah, super helpful. So it was a great time again. Thanks, very
1: Cool. Well, thank you, too. And I couldn't have said it better. So let's, uh, let's leave it at that. Uh, again, thank you so much for being here. I, I enjoy talking to you again. Um, and for you out there, thank you. Stay tuned and stay human.